Okay, let's go ahead and get started at uh, Proverbs 14 is where we left off, so we'll be jumping back into that. I received an online inquiry about chapter 13, verse 24. Whoever spares the rod hates his son. And just to talk a little bit about parental discipline and if there's any guidance from the word of the Lord in regard to that. So we'll have that conversation and we'll open it up so that those of you who have many more years experience than I do can also share your thoughts and experiences. Well, let's begin with an invocation and with the Our Father. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so just backing up then, chapter 13, verse 24, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. And we reflected on this in the most profound and penetrating, as well as the most overarching meaning of this verse, being found in our relationship with God, our Father, who disciplines those whom he loves. We see that in the lives of the saints of the Old Testament and the New, and of course, the lives of the church, the lives of the people we know around us, and, yes, ourselves. So, it is true indeed that no one loves discipline while it's taking place, but afterward, the fruits of that discipline can certainly be appreciated. So, our Heavenly Father disciplines those whom he loves, his own beloved children. And so then, that's, it, it's from that reality, downward flowing, that parents who love their children discipline them. <coughs> now, maybe we could agree and on some parameters, even if they're somewhat artificial, and if you have other parameters that you consider, let me know those. But there would be a kind of parenting that's, too harsh, so where the punishment doesn't fit the crime, so to speak. But then there could also be parenting that's too lenient, that's too permissive. Again, the punishment doesn't fit the crime, or there isn't a significant enough deterrent. So I think that those might be two ditches that we could all identify as overly strict or overly lenient or whatever language we wanted to use for those two ditches. So the principle of of justice and the principle of love and the principle of uh, doing discipline because we love them and for their good, that all makes sense, right? Okay, so that might be be one way in which we try to avoid those two ditches. Maybe another set of parameters that will seem obvious to you, is something like overbearing. Uh, what, are we, what do they say? A helicopter mom. Wherever the kid is, you can hear mom's rotors, you know, right, right in the distance. She's somewhere over there. 
Tiger Mom is another one, although I don't hope that's not racist. Um, but it's this idea that, you know, you got to be, mom insists that you be the absolute best. And of course, uh, you know, that can be dad too. So this idea of overbearing, and that might be a ditch to avoid, obviously. The other side would be, ah, go play along the yellow lines in the middle of the freeway, <laughs> right? Or it's 6 a.m., out you go, the door is locked, it'll be unlocked at 8 p.m. Right, so what do I do? I don't care. So I don't think that this is much a problem in our society. <laughs> we, but that is, a, that is probably this over-leniency and overly disconnected, whatever, you might have a more clever word for it or a more accurate word for it, but that might be another ditch. So what are the, if those are two opposite errors and the other, the other that I gave, uh, too strict uh, or too punitive versus too lenient, too loose, what do, you think, what do you think society trends us toward along those two, two ways? Loosey-goosey. Loosey-goosey, okay. Too, too lenient on the one hand, but helicopterish, there's a word, helicopterish on the other hand, which at first doesn't make sense. At first seems counterintuitive. But it's not because one is compensating for the other. I don't have to discipline my child so that he or she learns to conduct themselves in a way that I don't have to be a helicopter. Rather, I can avoid disciplining them at all, be their best friend, and be there as a helicopter in case anything bad happens. That's at least my read on that. Now, as you can tell, there's no chapter and verse. <laughs> but that's the way I read our culture and the way I think of some general parameters of parenting. So another aspect of parenting that I can think of uh, that, that um, should go into the conversation of discipline is the nature of the children and maybe even the nature of the parents. So if you have a child who's exceedingly stubborn, you might discipline that child in a way that's different than a child that's very compliant. You have a child that's doing everything they can, generally speaking, to abide by the rules, but they stumble. Or you have a child who, generally speaking, is doing everything they can to find a way around the rules, to bend them to the point of breaking, and it's a constant, you might look at those two kinds of children or wherever they are on the spectrum and parent accordingly. There are children that tend more toward rule-keeping, and that comes with its own pros and cons. And there are others, children, that have a more, shall we say, pragmatic view of life. So uh, my daughter, she's young enough, She's one of the, I, I kind of have those two quintessentials, really. They're poles apart. I've got my son, who's very much like, hey, where, what's the rule? I want to keep it so I don't get in trouble. And then I've got my daughter, who's very pragmatic. What's the consequence if I get caught? <laughs> and is it worth it? <laughs> That's the calculation. So sometimes she'll ask, like, what's the rule? And you'll see the wheels turning. <laughs> 
So you're, you know, you'll be grounded for an hour. The wheels are turning. Two hours. Two hours is the grounding. <laughs> Modifying the deterrent ahead of time. So that's a factor in parenting. And you know what, what parenting is a lot too, it has to do with like justice, just governing, because the roles of civil government and the roles of church government are parental in nature, nature paternal in nature. And so they have, to, they have to do with justice and what's right, but they also have to do with deterrent. So sometimes, sometimes punishing once... Uh, you know, don't get the wrong impression here, but once, like, with a certain level of severity to make it a deterrent means you don't have to punish 20 other times that week. So that's another kind of parenting dynamic uh, that you might recognize, those of you who are parents. or You've all been children, so maybe you're on the receiving end of this. But uh, that's one dynamic, too, is that, the, is that the punishment wants to be, you want the punishment to be a deterrent because the goal isn't to constantly punish. The goal is to deter and ultimately to teach that, hey, the, th- the reason why there's such a strong deterrent attached is because if you do this thing, it's going to be harmful to you or to others. So we're helping you to see that in advance. All right, so those are some general statements and some general talking points. What I thought I'd do is just kind of open it up for your reflections as parents, and then I'll kind of give... Uh, just a summary statement on what I think the Bible has to say. Okay. So, any thoughts? I promise to not use your first name to not dox you online. Just one observation. Yeah. It's maybe so obvious we don't need to say it, but then maybe it's so obvious we do. Um, that in the way he should go is so important. So if parents do not have a clear understanding of what that way is, the punishment can become very arbitrary Mm. or maybe even harmful in that you're training them in an incorrect way. Such a fantastic point. Yeah, so the way he should go, um, being that biblical way, so train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is older, he will not depart from it. So the parents need to have a crystal clear goal in mind with... uh, Really, they're overarching parenting, right? And, and the first goal, the first goal of all parenting, I know this isn't going to stun anyone in this room, but it will stun a lot of people in our culture, is not to guarantee that your child becomes a collegiate or professional athlete. <laughs> That's not actually the number one goal. And the number one goal is to raise Christians, to raise people who will serve God here in time and dwell with him forever in eternity. So the way he should go, to grab that biblical phrase, is ultimately toward God and toward heaven as the primary, and as a, as a very close secondary, to be useful to God and in service of his kingdom here on earth. So we want our parenting always directed toward that. And we're, uh, you know, I think that in keeping with that, like in Ephesians, um, there's this kind of, it seems maybe out of place, but I think in this context it makes perfect sense. And that is that uh, fathers in particular are instructed not to uh, embitter their children. 
So not, I, I think, you know, I'm, I'm kind of adding words to paraphrase the sense of the scripture, but not to lord it over children in such a way that they end up despising you and embittered by your correction. I mean, now they're not going to be happy with you when you discipline them. That's a fact. But there's a difference between that passing unhappiness and a deeper resentment and hatred, which really, and sometimes in America, I think we, we act as though this is like a natural or necessary part of teenage life growing up. It isn't. It's common, but the right father and the right son can frequently understand that even though they're unhappy with each other, it's happening this way because the father loves the son. And it's happening this way because the father wants better for his son than what his son is now choosing. I mean, the same is true for daughters, but of course. So just some, uh, some additional thoughts there, but thank you. I think that's a wonderful reflection. Is there another hand? I'm looking for parents with lots of experience. Some of you grandparents, so you've, not only have you done it, but you've, you're seeing it done by your children, right, right or wrong. <laughs> no naming names. I think, it, I think that's part of being a grandparent, isn't it? You look at your children's parenting and you always think, <sighs> uh, I don't have a lot of experience, but um, I was thinking about let your yes be yes and your no be no and how I'm retraining myself to follow that. Um, over, I mean, the worst uh, punishment that I can give Beatrice is no story tonight, because mm-hmm. she loves the story. And but I would catch myself slipping back, and uh, you know, uh, you know, she would do something good, and I would go back on my no, or or it was vanity, wanting to seem like a nice person. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm very much aware of that problem. I, I'm, that's on the parent side. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I'd love to hear about from people who have more experience. Yeah, I think those are some great points. And, and you kind of brought up that is, this is one of the things that really ails us. So to zoom all the way out, one of the either macro religions or macro tenets of the American religion, I don't so much care as where you organize it, is this egalitarianism. Radical egalitarianism that erases and destroys hierarchies of any kind. This destroys marriages. It destroys parent-children relationships. It destroys uh, congregations and churches. It destroys nations and states. The idea that there is no hierarchy, no authority that is due to be honored simply because it exists. So this, this raw egalitarianism plagues everything. And one of the ways that manifests itself in parenting is the phenomenon that we want to be our children's friend. I think that that's um, not part of the vocation. I think you can have things that, like, let's say this is friendship and this is parenting, a Venn diagram type thing. There's going to be some overlap between those things conceptually. But there's going to be more distinction than overlap. You have a role and responsibility to your children that if you're going to conduct that faithfully, you can't be their friend. If you are their friend, that means also they are your friend. And friendship usually involves a level of intimacy and confidence. 
this is a good way to turn your child into your therapist, which is going to be disastrous for them. This is a good way to grouse about your spouse to your children, which is going to be a disaster for the whole family. So if there is a friendship in great big quotes, it has to be one-sided. It has to be, I'm on your side, I'm your confidant, you know, in the sense that you can confide in me. But I'm not going to confide in you, my child. I'm not going to look to you, my child, for emotional fulfillment or for a sense of meaning or purpose. As soon as you've done that, I think you've crossed an important boundary that even if the bad fruit doesn't manifest right away, it will down the line. Now, when your children are older and out of the house, do things change in that regard? Yeah, I think they do. I think they definitely do. Those, those relationships are fluid through time, and they change over time. And especially when you look at your son or daughter and they've got a family of your own, yeah, you, you probably, if your parenting hasn't changed from their teenage years to that point in time, you probably want to evaluate that, right? Yeah. So, so those are other things, I think, other, other things that we'd find general agreement, general agreement on. Okay, Anything else? Any, anyone else want, brave enough to uh, venture some thoughts on parenting? Okay, here's a hand all the way up front. Don't you think God has a sense of humor with parenting? Um, I think we as a parent, uh, we need to teach our children to respect us. And like the Asian uh, people, mm-hmm. uh, we as a children, we re- completely respect the authority of our parents. But it's because they taught us to be like that. Mm-hmm. So we don't question. It's, it's not like a bad, like a bad uh, situation, but we don't question their authority. We don't question their teachings. Mm-hmm. Uh, it gives us as children, a position of obedient, like the Bible teaches. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I think um, American culture is different right now. Is teaching the kids that you know they have their own rights and they don't have to consult the parents. They don't listen. Mm-hmm. They don't have to listen to to the parents. And it's really very uh, extreme, you know, on that area. So right. Right. Yeah, don't get me down that rabbit hole because I do, I do think government is, trying, is intentionally trying to sabotage families to reconstruct itself as the parent. And so it, if we recognize that, I mean, just as Christians, it doesn't matter if you're a parent or not. If you recognize that's what's happening, that's the battle. Because God creates the family as the family unit, the unit of creation and society. What is Satan attacking? That unit. You've even heard politicians in the last month, many, uh, well, several of them I've heard, say, refer to children in America as our children. Oh, those are fighting words. Those are fighting words. You can feel the hair bristling. That's not going to happen. So that's a violation. Remember how we talk about the three estates. That's why it's so important. I know it's kind of dry and bookish to think about these things, but the three estates are so important to have down in your mind. 
the estate of the state, the estate of the family, and the estate of the church. These are three estates, three structures that God creates. And they all work together under the reign of Christ who is enthroned in heaven. And some are working functionally and others dysfunctionally, etc. And we can gauge that by, on the basis of God's word. But when we see one estate, namely the government, claiming the children, that's a direct intrusion of one estate into the other estate. It's no less offensive than if the government sent armed guards into the church and delivered a sermon to me and said, this is what you're going to preach. It's no less offensive than the government saying to us, your children are our children. Absolutely contrary to the creation. Absolutely contrary to God. And yes, you're well within your rights as a Christian to fight that in whatever way you see fit. Because it's defense of your neighbor, the very neighbors, your little children, that you've been given care over. So, things to keep in mind in that regard, too. And you, so, yeah, we've got, we've got cultural issues manifesting now in statements by those who govern and rule over us. This whole idea of um, going around the parents to get surgeries done, you know. Can't, you can't drink a beer, you can't smoke a cigarette, you can't own a firearm, but you can cut off body parts. And you can do so without your parents. Or if your parents say no, you can be plucked away from your parents because supposedly government's authority supersedes the parents' authority. But you have to know your theology of the three estates to know that that's not right and you are 100% on the side of God if you stand in resistance against it. And that resistance knows no bounds. We're over here in the civil sphere in the first article of the creed we're in defense of neighbor, physical defense of neighbor, because they're going to take your children from you and cut off their body parts. It really doesn't, frankly, get any clearer. Okay, so those are things for us to consider as Christians in our current context. So how do you get your children as a parent to respect you? Because I think that's such an important point, because then discipline takes on a different context, doesn't it? If your children don't respect you, they tend to see you as an obstacle to get around. You know, kind of how we view the government. We view it as an obstacle to get around, and we obey the law just enough to where the sledgehammer doesn't come down on us. That's because we've lost respect. Part of that's our fault, part of that's their fault. Part of it's our natural sinful rebellion, part of it's the fact that all our trust has been abused and stamped on about a thousand times over. Okay. But then that plays itself out in the family dynamics. That if your children don't respect you, they just see you as an obstacle to get around their obedience to you, the bare minimum, so that the sledgehammer doesn't fall. That's falling short of the ideal that God has for parenting. I would say that is absolutely certain. So respect, of course, is simply owed That's like the third commandment, just by virtue of the fact that you gave birth to these little creatures and sustained their lives when they couldn't sustain them. Respect is owed, all right? And that's true, and that's binding upon them. But respect is also what? Earned. It really is. 
And this is the slow, hard part of parenting. I don't mean to be preachy about any of this. I'm learning as I go along, and I'm making mistakes like every day. So <laughs> don't mean to be preachy at all. But this is, um, respect is something that is earned. And this is, the, this is the long form of parenting. This is why people hate parenting and ship their kids off to daycare. Because you have to build a relationship and build trust. And that takes time. And that takes putting your iPhone down. And that take, when they crawl up on your lap, your iPhone goes down, and you're going to listen to nonsense for the next 25 minutes. But you're doing so because why? A little child, even though they're not going to be able to articulate it, bounces off your leg and runs away. And even if they're not able to cognate it or articulate it, they're thinking, he listens, he gets it, he loves me, he cares. That's a way of building respect. So yeah, while respect's owed, I think many parents make a mistake that they don't ever put in the time. And so they just demand that respect is owed, and that comes across as draconian and off-putting, and ultimately a child feels pretty hollowed out by that. If you get any sort of obedience, it's of the superficial nature. But where you've taken the long time, and this is encouragement to all you parents going through it, uh, encouragement to grandparents to communicate this to your children as they raise theirs, that it's the long form that really makes the difference. It's the, it's the lessons of, of where you spend your time, where you spend your energy, and how you engage with them. And I think that this is a, a way in which once you've sort of built that relationship, when you look your child in the eye and say no, it carries so much more weight then if you're completely absentee, and then you say, no, or else I'm going to make your life miserable. Those are two ways of achieving maybe the same behavioral end, but they're categorically different. They're very different in terms of their quality. So I think we as parents can do much to nurture that sense of respect in our children by the way we Spend time with them, raise them, communicate them. Your little kids need to know that you're a good person. And they need to know that you care. And they need to know that your uh, money is where your mouth is, so to speak. And that your behaviors match up with your words. And those are important factors. When parents get busy and stressed out and everybody's working and everything else, it's just easier to yell. Or it's just easier to draconian discipline. It's just easier to turn on the yeah, phone, internet, gaming system, whatever it is. And yeah, I'm not saying, I'm not saying reject that entirely. That's what I mean. <laughs> you need a little break once in a while, parents. You have to have that. But to just say, hey, here's your iPad babysitter that's going to do my job and relate to you. Then later on when you're like, why don't my kids care about what I have to say? Why are my kids disconnected? Why do they seem as though they've already been catechized by the world? Well, have you set them in front of the world? For So again, I don't mean to sound preachy by any of this, but these are things, especially those of you with young children, younger children, you know, really pay attention to. And I think... All right, so those are just some general comments on parenting. Do we see another? Yeah, please. Just real quick. I'm relying on you all to add your wit and wisdom. I'm just throwing stuff out here, seeing what... I don't know about wit and wisdom, but two two things that are coming to my mind is if you go into a situation with a child and you have a disordered sense of yourself, as we've been raised in America, that we're number one, it's all about me, you know, thinking, 
you've already touched on being a friend to your child or somehow they're your accessory or a reflection mm-hmm. of you or it's not about you. Mm-hmm. If you don't have humility or the ability to give, if your cup is half empty, you can't give to a child because they don't give back. They just don't know how. They're just, they'll take. Mm-hmm. That's it. Mm-hmm. The other thing I was thinking, shoot, I lost my thought. If you think of it, jump back in. Yeah. I'll come back to it. Okay. Yeah, I think that's good insight. Well, and it's a reminder that all the vocations God gives to us, whether marriage or children or workplace, the, vo- the chief vocations that God gives to us are not for our happiness, but for our holiness. Now, happiness comes along the way, but the goal better not be happiness. The goal is holiness. And so if you're a husband, the problems that you have with your wife, yeah, they're just part of the curse, okay? But they're also the hands of the potter forming the clay. There you go, oh, it feels like I'm being crucified. Okay, yeah, well, jokes aside, you are. You're being conformed into the image of Christ, the crucified. The same is true for wives in their vocations under their husbands. And then likewise for parents and children, because our flesh is inimical to these things. And so there's a constant struggle, a constant strife, a constant atrophy, a constant chaos. And that is there, again, so that we're not looking at our children as objects to make us more happy. Boy, and isn't that pathetic when you see it? I mean, when you see it played out, like, oh, my kid won the championship. And it's like, you won the championship. You can't stop boasting about how you, like, you're vicariously awesome through your kid. I mean, it's just so lame. But you can tell where parents just disintegrate into that idea of my kid is my identity. Ooh. Bad, 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 bad in many ways. Way to mess up your kid. So, yeah, this idea of keeping your vocations as God gives and orders them, that is a fight to fulfill the role that God has given you. And again, because egalitarianism is the religion or the major tenet of American religion, I'll give you some concrete and inflammatory things. What your flesh wants to do, husbands, is never correct your wife or tell her her place. God is calling you to do that. What you, wife, want to do is domineer over your husband and lord it over your children. That's how you've got to crucify yourself in our context. Children want to subvert and control their parents and have their parents basically living for the children's happiness. And parents will often, all too, will often acquiesce to this and just become vehicles for their children's pleasure, which feels good, but is completely disordered and produces disordered fruit. So a lot of our vocational roles in this particular context where egalitarianism is the disease is to actually fight upstream against the grain to reestablish the God-given hierarchies, vocations, and roles, no more and no less than as described in the Scripture. It, some of you will remember the house toffle texts out of Scripture, the house table texts that we went through at some length. Um, Ephesians, Colossians, uh, Titus all have house table, household codes where the household hierarchies are delineated. So you're going to see, if you pay really close attention to those, you're going to see how far away American, even American Christian, 
sensibilities are from the biblical instruction booklet of how to form a Christian household. So that's the struggle, and the struggle's real. By the way, that's, these are where the real attacks of Satan are in our day and age. We'd much prefer just sit around and talk about justification, or we'd much rather prefer to talk about how grace works. Uh, trust me, I know. Or we'd rather talk about, you know, angels and heaven and anything we, anything we could possibly talk about. All that stuff's good. Anything we could possibly talk about other than the actual satanic attacks right now because they infect our hearts, they infect our ways of thinking, and the correction sounds uh, unappealing, to put it politely. But that's how the flesh always is with the things of the Spirit of God. So a lot of the crucifixion that God's working through our vocations is to conform us into his image, and that means conforming us into his word. So there's my, well, I don't know, maybe I'll do another one, but there's at least one unpopular segment for you, uh, guaranteed to be offensive uh, this morning. Was there, yeah, please. I would suggest that telling, uh, reading and telling stories are very important. Our brains are wired for stories, and this is how God has spoken to us through the scriptures. I think mm-hmm. it's very effective. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, that's a great point. I mean, I'll try not to launch too much up on this, but yeah, the, as, as a father, now mothers can do this too, but as a father, you're the keeper of your family culture. You're the teller of stories. You're the chronicler of how this particular family unit, your wife and children, fit within the larger family units. And you're responsible for cultivating that narrative so that your children know and understand something more broadly about who they are. That helps inoculate against the spirit of the age, which says to each every little child, hey, you're just a ghost in a machine, so you can be whatever you want to be. You can change your body however you think you are internally. You're, you're essentially a tabula rasa. You're a, you're a blank slate born into the world. Now you can be whatever you want to be. That is a satanic teaching. And that teaching will lead to absolute destruction, anyone who holds to it. You are born into the world, into a family with genetics, with, that is with nature, and with a certain kind of nurture that's going to come from your parents, which are products of what came all the way back. And so to understand the family story, to understand family strengths and family weaknesses, family character, family uh, uh, falls and family triumphs, and then to guide your specific family unit within that context. And you're the one that keeps the good memories. I mean, it can be mom too, but dads especially. Like, What do you talk about at the dinner table when you put down your iPhone? I don't know. Nothing. Because that's exactly what comes to my mind. <laughs> but what should come to our minds, even though it's easier said than done, is to carry the conversation, to direct the table conversation. You're the host as the father. You carry the table conversation. You provide substance and meaning. You ask questions until you get to something of interest. You bring it back to God and to the spiritual principles when it's appropriate and not obnoxious. You um, recount the good things of the past that builds your children up, and you're showing them in story narrative form, you're also showing them that what you do has meaning. What's the spirit of the age? Nihilism. Nothing you do has any meaning. 
Nothing you do has any consequence. Just do whatever you want to do. There's never any consequence. There's never any meaning or purpose to what you do. But when a father highlights and says, this was an incredible thing. Oh, that I won the championship game? No. That you got struck out, but there wasn't a tear in your eye and you kept cheering on your team. And you didn't give up. And yeah, ultimately they won. But the moment I'm most proud of you is not the great play you made. See how that's a way of building up. It's not just the great play you made, but it's when you failed and didn't give up. That's the kind of thing that we as parents, but again, it falls most firmly on the, on the father, to tell those stories because they teach kids that what I do matters. And what I do has an impact, and it's part of a narrative and a story um, that's bigger than me. It goes back farther than I can conceive, and unless the Lord returns, it's going to go forward further than I can conceive. So those are really valuable things, and I know I'm riffing on your point. I hope you don't mind. Um, Yes, please. I remembered what I was going to say. It gives, parenting gives us an opportunity to heal those traumas that we perceive that we experienced as children. So now, all of a sudden, as an adult, you're standing in a situation and you see it from the adult perspective. Now you can maybe give some grace to your parents when something that you thought they were being so selfish about, you see the challenges that they were facing. So that's kind of a supernatural healing that can happen if you allow it to. That's a great point. Yeah, it's a great point you bring up, to reflect on those things. Uh, You know, when you're a kid, you look up to your parents. You know, your dad's got a little mustache and receding hairline, and he's got the white picket fence, and you just think dad's always been this way. And he should, should, you know. And, And then you get to that age, or the equivalent, and you go, I'm still a kid, first of all. And second of all, I'm flying by the seat of my pants. Right? And you can appreciate, yeah, you can look back at history and go, my dad was doing this when he was 10 years younger, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, so, yeah, you can really gain a lot of perspective, grace, slack, uh, healing, all of those things. Oh. You know, and, and I, think, I think maybe just some closing words from me on the general uh, rumination or meditation we've had so far, and that's that in the history of the world, there's not been a single set of parents where the children have been like, oh, they got it right. There's not been a single set. You know, I think every generation where you've got parents who are thoughtful, they go like this. They go, I was raised, and these parts were good, and these parts were bad. I'm going to strain out the bad, and I'm just going to give the good. My kids will be the first kids on the face of the earth in all of history to have just good And inevitably, what do the kids do? (sighs) These things were good, and these things were bad, so I'm going to strain out the bad, and I'm just going to get... Yeah, and you get the point. On and on and on down the generations. So there is is in that sense uh, no winning. There's no perfect parents. There's no way that you can go, okay, I did it. Um, That's for sure. And you can see then how intimately the grace of God and the forgiveness of sins is connected to family life. And it really is, I'll I'll make two plugs, it really is why you want to be in church with your family every Sunday. 
because you all receive the forgiveness of sins. You all confess your sins. You all receive the blood of Christ in the sacrament. That is a weekly routine that is, it is essential for the health of your family. And then fight the fight. Here's my plug for the daily. Fight the fight to have your morning and evening prayers, your meal prayers if, if you've got the kids at home. But to have those times of reconciliation, have those times where you draw near to God. And so good times, bad times, fights, feeling it, not feeling it, whatever, we still pray. We still talk to God. Um, Not only is that healing in the moment, but that teaches a really good lifelong lesson that whether to your kids, whether times are good, whether I'm angry at God or angry at my parents or angry at the world or sad or hurt or happy or whatever, you pray. You always pray because there's always a God who has his ear open to you and a heavenly father who is perfect and is reconciled to you through Christ. So those would be my, my parting words of encouragement there. Biblically, you know, I think the principle would be something like used... Uh, what, um, Eric, you might be able to help me with this. The, the least amount of force necessary... Does that sound right? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I wanted to make sure I wasn't butchering it. The least amount of force necessary. It's not necessarily the least amount of force. Okay. But the amount of force appropriate for the situation. Bingo. Um, like okay, yeah. Well, fair enough. I think same material point. So, so biblically speaking, I mean, that, that would include the rod. If the rod is the way to get through, the rod is the way to get through. Culture, time, place, personalities, all of that factors in. I don't think Christians ought to say, well, I want to be a Bible-believing Christian, so as soon as I get home, I'm going to buy a tree, and I'm going to plant the tree so I can have some rods. I don't think that that's, a <laughs> that's not the take-home from Proverbs 13, 24. But I think the, pro- the, the point of the proverb is discipline and whatever means is necessary in order to guide that child in the way they should go. And, you know, there are some little children, as you might well be aware of, that the rod does virtually nothing. There's a child of of whom I will not name, but when the rod came in the form of a wooden spoon, took it, laughed, and sneered. And one day reached around and caught the spoon, and it snapped. So is physical punishment the best way to parent that kind of individual? No. So part of it is finding the leverage point and utilizing that. I think someone mentioned a leverage point in here. Um, Find the leverage point, find the thing that's actually the deterrent, and use that. You know, if that's time off a gaming system or some other form of grounding or whatever the case may be, find the leverage and use that and then use it appropriately. Okay, so whoever spares the rod hates his son. Discipline is something that's necessary, even as our Heavenly Father disciplines us. But he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. On to 25, the righteous has enough to satisfy his appetite, but the belly of the wicked suffers want. And we talked about that last week and the the ways in which we reflect on that. At 14.1, we hit new material. This is somewhat artificially grouped as part two of three of a wise son, wise ways to live. 
The wisest of women builds her house. So this is apropos of what we've been talking about. It doesn't mean hammer nails and two-by-fours. She's not physically building her house. Um, The wisest of women builds her house. That's You're looking around at the people of your house, and yeah, your physical resources, including whatever house or apartment or tent, as the case may be, uh, you have. And the wisest of women is thinking, how can I take what God has given and build? The other side of this proverb, but folly with her own hands tears it down. So, I mean, (laughs) it's almost become a cliche in our culture, you know. The the, uh, women's power and all of that stuff. Here's the Bible identifying where women's power really lies. And that's in making or destroying a home. Making and building a place for... um, the thriving of the family members or making and building a place that tears all of that down. And I think I've talked about this positively before, that we really underestimate this stuff, and we have to regain this, that just as the church has its sacraments, the home has its sacraments. No, the sacraments of home don't confer grace, okay? That's the sacraments that Christ gives in his church. But there are nonetheless sacraments at home and rituals at home that make all the difference in the world. A home-cooked meal can turn an absolute crappy day where your kids got an F and messed up in the speech and got made fun of and pushed down in the mud. And they come home and they're able to just weep and cry it out and gorge themselves on delicious chicken nuggets or chicken noodle soup or whatever it may be. And watch, watch the attitude and the mood and the demeanor flip around. Life's going to be okay. My family's here. There's food on the table. They're not going to articulate these things. But that place of home, that place of comfort, that place of, okay, that, the world's falling apart. You're right. But have some soup. That is such a good thing. Same with, you know, beds and bedrooms. You know, those, those are probably the two most important places in the house. Bed and board. The kitchen table and what happens there, and the bedrooms and what happens there. Those are the sacraments of the home, uh, the chief sacraments of the home, because they're the places of just, and I'm talking here just left-hand kingdom, first article of the creed, places of healing, places of psychological healing, physical healing, well-being, learning that you're taken care of, learning that you're loved, um, etc., So I think that that's what's kind of at the heart of this, is women realize where your your God-given power is, where your God-given talents are. And I would also say that this is something husbands can attempt to do and to some degree accomplish, but not the way women can. You're gated for and built for this by God. So the wisest of women builds her house, but folly with her own hands tears it down. Whoever walks in uprightness, and it's good to introduce this here because uprightness is going to be a theme um, throughout the remainder of this section. Whoever walks in uprightness fears the Lord. Remember what the fear of the Lord is? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's really the heart of all the Proverbs. It's the theme and thesis of all the Proverbs that 
The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So whoever walks in uprightness fears the Lord. Now, in fearing the Lord, you walk in uprightness. It's kind of like putting the fruit before the tree. But as you fear the Lord, you walk in uprightness. demonstrates your fear of the Lord. It's ontologically one with your fear of the Lord. What's the contrast? He who is devious in his ways despises him, despises the Lord. So here you gain a sense of what uprightness means in the immediate context. Uprightness means things like honesty, straightforwardness, simplicity. Those are the things that, that come from the fear of the Lord and demonstrate fear of the Lord. What things come from despising the Lord and demonstrate despising or hatred of the Lord? Um, being devious in ways. Unjust, underhanded, letting your no be yes and your yes be no. Crafty, tricky, those kinds of words, those kinds of behaviors. All right, so next week then, let's jump into this idea of uprightness and the remainder of chapter 14. The Lord be with you.